This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down to talk to Jordan Hillstrom. Jordan is the Vice President of Business Development at Zeratech, a software company. Uh, he was a Army Ranger. Uh, Zeratech sponsors this podcast. That's where I have the studio. So I really appreciate all that they've done to help me out. Uh, really, really appreciate that. And then also just wanted to talk to Jordan. He's a different thinker. Uh, we get into a lot of it here and not necessarily having an obsession per se, but really just always challenging the status quo and asking why, why, why. Uh, and he's had that for most of his life. So it's just interesting to hear how that played out throughout his life. And we chat about his time in the military as a ranger and what that looked like. Um, so I really enjoyed this one. I hope you guys do as well. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. Jordan, thanks for coming in today. Hey man, it's been a couple of trips in the making, so I appreciate you finally making a, or me making time for you, I guess I should say, really. Yeah, right. Uh, we were talking right before we came on and, and you said if you had to define an obsession or even thinking about the, the, the format of this podcast, you were saying you always like to challenge the status quo. What Can you elaborate on that? Where did that come from? Have you been like that since age three or, or even when you were young or where did that come from? You know, I think in school, uh, early on, I was always in my older brother's shadows and kind of watching him, he was very studious in nature he always read he was always just that kind of that 4.0 type student mm -hmm. and i remember even having teachers tell me like, why don't you be more like your brother and it got me thinking like oh well, i'm not a i'm not my brother and i think differently and so when i see a problem i don't always see that the solution they're trying to provide or the the approach to get to the solution mm -hmm. and it was just another way of seeing life and seeing how things are should be viewed is not just through that one size fits all approach and so I was asked the why question all the time. I just, I was never satisfied with the first thing I heard. I wanted to know more about the behind the scenes and why it, why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. So honestly, since third, fourth grade, I remember I was asking, you know, why, why? Hmm. But I think when you're young, it's like, that's uh, they kind of view it as disrespectful, disobedient in nature. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, why are you always challenging authority? Right. It's not so much authority I'm challenging. It's just, I'm, I want to truly understand what's going on. Yeah. I wonder... I think I think we're similar in that way. For sure, I was the kid that asked too many questions, like you said, almost disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, but I had a really patient dad that went along with it, and, yeah. and I swear he would let me pay, play thirty questions, and, <laughs> and go to the to the nth degree of like, why does this matter? But he's you guarantee he's got to be rolling his eyes saying, why on earth does this matter? But and again, I don't necessarily, yeah, just a curiosity thing. Was yeah. it a curiosity thing for you too, or no? I, I think I'm I'm so wired that direction where. You know, when I was in the military, I used this example of, you know, let's say you're in a combat scenario and your leader is like, go dig that hole now. Right. And you're like, well, I don't feel like digging a hole. You get angry about it. But if he comes to you and he's like, hey, you know what? This is going to suck. I, I even have to tell you to do this, but you have to dig that hole because if we get attacked at the next, you know, let's say hill and we get overrun, this is our last line of defense. You might be saving thousands of lives by digging this one trench. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you're like, you're like, holy crap this is an awesome, you know, responsibility. And I can't wait to dig this hole. Yeah. So I think just in nature, like I hated being told what to do. Right. But if I was part of the the narrative, it was like, I'm, I'm part of it and I want to do it now. Yeah. Do you ever think about too, 
we'll jump around and we can always do that right but thinking about you 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 were a second son yes that, yeah in, in the timeline yeah isn't there an element of that too where there's a, a, a maybe a predictability in in your temperament and your demeanor and maybe being more independent and more questioning versus a, a first son firstborn son you ever thought about that yeah i've thought about that a lot is like the uh yeah and i have a huge family there's a lot of families in the in you know this finnish environment that we grew up in right, right. but yeah i think in general i you kind of feel like that gray child some so maybe there's an element of that where you you want to be understood and known so it's not just a going with the flow scenario yeah just a just a number so to speak in an odd way right right well no uh, and again thinking about that firstborn and it could be son daughter whatever else the first child i think typically and you may be, may know may know may know more about this typically they're a rule follower more diligent mm-hmm. uh, more likely to just follow the what the projected path has been for them yeah whereas a, a second kid is going to be more prone to buck against that yeah and i'm third in line in my family there's okay. uh sister and brother in front of me but yeah I, i've seen a lot of families that exact scenario point out yeah and it can be second third fourth or fifth but either way it seems like there's a difference between that first and ones that come after oh, definitely that. yeah but yeah just curious how that played out but so you again because of that dynamic but then also you you didn't like to just say because i said so or here because yeah. i said so you want to know the why behind it yeah how did that transition later on then i mean through high school through into into, into your military career stuff like that so i think oh high school sucked i okay. mean i'll be honest um it was so sterile to where they trained one method that was it It was yeah. like you're in rows and columns you raise your hand to get answered and it was very like in my mind they're training you to be servants to the system sure yeah. you, you wanted to be an assembly line workers in a, in a manufacturing plant it's kind of how i thought school was set up and i was more outside the box thinker in general so i never really liked school in general um i had a couple of good teachers that were different and they understood how to ask different kind of questions and how to engage like me at my level mm-hmm. and all of a sudden i enjoyed that time enjoyed that class but yeah by and large i didn't like it um and the military was cool because uh well a few things that were kind of a, a segue into where i was even in the military um have you watched the movie patriot mm-hmm. mel gibson yeah so that was that whole idea of his character in that movie he was called uh the swamp fox um francis marion was that real character in real life um known as like the original founder of the ranger regiment in theory right the the concept of unconventional warfare okay. came from guys like that huh. so in the revolutionary war this idea of going you know toe-to-toe with the redcoats was just ridiculous we were getting killed left and right and you know, as I said, we were farmers with pitchforks, no official training, w- way under-equipped. Where he's like, I'm not going to meet them where they're strong at. I'm going to meet them in their, their weak spots, which they don't know the terrain. They don't know how to get supply routes figured out. So he he, he cut off their supply lines and, and those kind of tactics. So yeah, uh, I watched that movie, and that was one catalyst. But um, even rewinding a little bit, I had a teacher in fifth grade that was a Vietnam era veteran. And he was one of those teachers that he understood that not all kids are the same and so one thing he would do like before tests he'd get us out and play football outside even 10 minutes throw the ball around get us running around come back to the test hmm. and i seem to always do better in, in that structure was a little bit different um, but he talked about like understanding who you are and finding your niche in the world based off your personality style don't just plug yourself in because someone tells you got to do something in a certain way huh. at fifth grade he was yeah. talking about that yeah okay huh and, and that had an impact on you. Like at that point you were thinking about that kind of stuff, about how you're different. hundred percent. I think that was one of the biggest like changes in my entire life is having a teacher, like meet you at where you're at and speak life into you. And I believe like the words we speak have life and death in them. Right. And he was the first teacher that met me specifically Jordan, not just a student, but you know, took the time to, to talk about what I liked and what I didn't like and how I, how I studied and how I didn't study. 
And uh, yeah, it, it kind of gave me permission in a sense that I wasn't being disrespectful, disobedient by asking questions. Yeah. It was like, you're just trying to figure things out. That's the way you're wired. So go with it. Right. Yeah. There's uh, many, many things I'm thinking about. There is a lot of things I've learned from the start of this podcast. I've learned so much. One of the things I've learned, and, and maybe it's just so obvious, but I didn't realize this going into it, is almost universally people have had small moments, a fifth grade teacher mm-hmm. that have totally impacted their lives. And because of that, you could say like fake, somebody else could have filled that role, but either way, that was the catalyst that pointed them in this direction that really fulfilled and, and, and brought them to where they are today. And without that happening, you could be worlds apart from where you are today. Do you feel that that's true for that, that, that experience or, or would that have been just, that was just inevitable? When you said that, I thought of restaurants, Okay, you know, like I'm not a food connoisseur of sorts. I don't know all the, you know, I'm not a chef, but when you go to a restaurant and I don't care if it's a brick and like a nice brick and mortar, uh, chain, or if it's a hole in the wall, mom and pop, but when you get that plate of food and, and it's just like every single detail is just thought through to the mm. nth degree and you bite into it and it's just like you're for a moment just transcended, right? Right. You probably have a meal in your, in mind right now you think mm-hmm. about it's, it's that kind of style where it's like everything you do as a chef, you have to figure out how to master the masterpiece that you're building. Right. And when, when I try that, like I'm, I'm kind of taken into your world all of a sudden. So you're a master of your craft and I'm, I'm literally affected by it. Right. So I think of that style as like, I get to, I'm changed by that one meal experience. Mm-hmm. And it's same thing with any other, like you can be a realtor or whatever you're doing. The people that are master at their crafts and are just like heads down, just phenomenal at it. Mm-hmm. When you meet someone that's buying a house that's stressed out and you're just doing what you do, but you're a master at it you can change the trajectory of that process. All of a sudden it's not stressful anymore. And they're, they got a calm demeanor about it. They know that there's stress involved, but it's, it's a, it's a process you just played out. Mm-hmm. So I don't matter what you do and who you are. It's, I think just mastering your craft and honoring it. And when people meet the intersection, right. there's just something that's magical about it. And it's hard to truly explain, which is why I think food is a good way to extrapolate that. It's just, you bite it and you're like, holy crap, this is so good. Right. But are you saying that that teacher had his craft mastered and that was what that intersection you as a fifth grade and that teacher is what that correlation is? Yeah, I, I do think so. And I think by and large, because all the Vietnam era veterans I had any interaction with prior and even on, honestly after that was pretty negative. Okay. And he had this very empathetic view of life. It's like there was a lot of horrible things that he had experienced, but he wasn't going to let that define him. And he even talked about some pretty rough things to young kids, mm-hmm. which nowadays they would probably, you know slap him on the wrist for but he did it in a way to not paint a negative picture but it was like life can be rough yeah but you know what we can make the best of what we have today so i think he might not have been the best teacher right but he he taught me the best so like on on a metric system he might not have the best grades but the output he produced in his students outlived the grades in schools that they got in fifth grade i guess sure okay that makes sense um and and a lot of what I'm interested in is behind all this is like the psychology, but also thinking about child development. I've got sure. three little ones at home. So I'm thinking about you yeah. and even putting my kids into your shoes or me back in fifth grade or yeah. whatever it might be. And and recently talked to a psychologist who said that there is a the data shows there's a huge difference in the success of a kid who has an outside influence, non-parent outside influence, take notice in them and see them as Jordan mm-hmm. rather than just a, a sure. student, right? And that that difference is is huge for the kid. It's confidence. Yeah. It's huge for the kid to be seen that I am somebody that's special, I'm important, whatever else. That having that versus not having that is a huge indicator on how successful you will be later in life. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And okay. I remember other teachers even in school and some of the vernacular they talked about with, how big our families were 
and now we lived in southern Wisconsin then, so it wasn't as typical down there. But some of the negative connotations around that yeah. really affected me for sure. a while. I didn't realize at the time, but years later, years removed, like I would I would behave based off their behavior. Well, as a kid, when you're disrespectful because of something, it doesn't matter what the teacher or adult did, you're you're held accountable, but they're not really. Okay. Right? So like a lot of times when you're hurt, you project hurt feelings. So when they say things like, um, you know, don't your parents know what birth control is or something like that, right? right. How how damning to a young kid that is. Because right. what you're telling me is I have no value. Right. I'm just one of how many kids, and that's an issue to them. Yeah. So that was very damning. So the same thing could be applied to the negative, I think, on the external force. Sure, yeah. But I totally agree with that, the impact that outlives some of the parental things that can happen. Yeah. And parents are obviously everything, right? 100%, like without yeah. that, you have nothing. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Like it's it's a huge huge deal, but there is this this different tangential thing that is critical. Again, according to him, and and to me it makes sense. I can think of coaches that feel like today they have an impact on my life, and I still hear their voices telling me in times of struggle of, hey, you need to pick yourself up and not make excuses and stuff like that. That I think that outside force is a benefit. I think there's protection built within the parental walls or the home. So when you hear something from the outside, it's like there's someone outside that safe zone that's telling you something. So it has different impact. Sure. Because we put different kind of walls and barriers up based off who we're hearing things from. Yeah. So even like, a, you know, a spouse or a sibling will tell you something and you'll sometimes receive it differently than. So if your spouse says something that's negative or a family member, it can hurt you a lot deeper than the same exact word to someone on the outside. Yeah. Because you don't have the same relationship. So I think there's this weird dichotomy that happens from the person that's saying that, you know, the, whether it's wisdom or something to tear you down, I guess, too. Mm-hmm. But is there also an element of where a stranger giving you a compliment can be almost more powerful than a spouse? Because from a spouse or a, a family member, you expect it and it's normal and it's typical. Huh. And then somebody comes up to you and says off the street, hey, man, I really like the way you carry yourself. You're like, wow, okay, thank you. Where You know what I mean? Is there? So I wonder, like, the idea of us wanting to be part of a tribe. Like, sure. We, like, we need that, right? And I wonder if there's some of that element at play there, like, you know, the outside influence, knowing that you have, you have a position of, uh, you're being noticed and mm-hmm. it's, it's part of that tribalism in theory of, okay, I'm gonna be accepted into this tribe. And some of those compliments can kind of bolster the idea of that. Sure. And I wonder too, I think that that is probably partially true. And I wonder too, is it the novelty of it? You it know, feel, it just feels good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and it, it, yeah. And then even thinking about that, that probably goes back to you familiar with the five love languages. Oh yeah. Um, thinking about that, that if yours is words, which mine is words, so that's probably what sure. that comes into as well. Do you know what yours is? We don't so I like, I like active <laughs> service. That's one of my big things is active okay. service. Yeah. 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 And it feels weird Two men sitting across from each other talking love languages, but that's what this is about. I yeah, guess strong I mean. men can do that kind of stuff. I'll be all right with it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, I just curious about that. So I think that might be again, I'm talking about the stranger giving you a compliment and saying that can be pretty impactful. Whereas you're saying, Hey, if the stranger comes help me haul my couch, then that's a, a big deal. You know, the acts of service. Sure, versus yeah. yeah. So anyways, status quo, uh, challenging that questioning that did that, I guess, can you get into why you got into the military? What did that come from? And I'm curious if that plays into that. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so in fifth grade, again, he, that teacher planted a lot of seeds of like that the military is very positive. Mm-hmm. I didn't per se think I was going in at that point, but there's always that it could be an option. Right. Um, and then nine 11 happened and I was in eighth grade. So young kid. Um, and I remember, you know, just the teacher knocked on the, someone knocked on the door, the teacher opened the door and she had papers in her hand. And I remember like just vividly these papers falling, hitting the floor. And it was like, for whatever reason, it, that noise of papers hitting the floor, like impacted me at the same time. Cause we had heard, you know, that, that the buildings were bombed and that, that's what they said is bomb, but it's mm-hmm. obviously airplanes. But 
So we watched the video for a while that day for a few hours, went home and it was just such a somber just tone in general. And I, I believe it was a God thing just because I didn't know anybody that was actually affected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just convicted that like, if, if our country is attacked and these people are hurting, like no one really wants to go to war in theory, but I'm like, well, at eighth grade, I had this weird burden that was kind of placed in my heart to go and serve to protect those that couldn't be served, mm-hmm. which people can get into like the narcissistic part of that or whatever. Sure. I, I don't know. But right. at eighth grade, it was kind of like this idea of you, you should go and serve for those that can't help themselves. Um, it was kind of, kind of birthed in my, kind of in my being at that point, I guess. Okay. Um, and then, yeah. So the Francis Marion story I talked about earlier, um, this unconventional warfare kind of been, it was a kind of an obsession of mine. So I did reports on guys like that. And, um, yeah, I just remember when I, even I joined the military, my brother was already in, he was going through the Q course to kind of go the special operations route as well. And so I ended up getting a, a ranger contract and went, and went that route. Cause I really wanted to be part of a, you know, a special operations unit that didn't just do a conventional way to do, do war. Right. Right. Okay. Cause I was going to ask you if, Again, uh, it doesn't apply. I was going to ask you if the, a break in the status quo is like you went into the military because your brother did not, but Andrew, of course, was in the military. So it wasn't like you were going against what uh, oh, sure. a system was or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the tonality of, of how I joined is really like, again, I asked a lot of questions. So for instance, the recruiters like, yeah, you can't get a ranger contract. You're likely not going to make it anyways. Like this is a better route for you. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, go pound sand guy. Right. Like it's not happening. Yeah. And he's like, well, they don't have any contracts left. And I'm like, well, call me when they do. Like I didn't, I didn't care what he had to say because I already had my information, what I needed to have. Mm-hmm. So I didn't care what he told me. I was going to fight through that. Right. And I know it's a game. And back then they're recruiting very heavily, so I knew for a fact it'd be a matter of days he'd call me back. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think just just understanding that uh, the conventional way of of fighting was not was not for me. Okay. So I had to go to somewhere, some unit that that thought differently. Yeah. That allowed me to kind of express how I wanted to operate. And obviously the military is pretty rigid as itself. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but did you, I guess we're skipping way ahead, but did it fit and let you express and operate the way that you wanted to operate? Yeah, I think for the most part, I mean, anybody that's been either around the military or in the military for a minute, you'll realize like there's, it's very systems based. And, you know, as much as I believe in systems, I believe they should be challenged from time and time again. Okay. And the one thing that I really appreciated about the military or about the Ranger Regiment was there was three different battalions that were part of the 75th Ranger Regiment. Yeah. And there always be one forward, so one deployed, and then two back. One's gearing up to go, and one's just getting off at a mission, uh, deployment. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is take what's happening over in theater overseas, and and essentially train the next unit coming over for the new tactics that are happening. So you're always training new tactics, mm-hmm. new ways to do things, new tools, and they allowed us to really kind of be engaged in that process. So still pretty rigid. Okay, um, a lot of stuff is pre-planned, but they always had new things coming up. And at least gave us the illusion that we were trying to stay ahead of the enemy. We weren't always eight years behind, sure. which is most of the military was like the gear they got, the training they got, all these different things were so, you know, antiquated by the time they got the training on them. So okay. it just felt like everything was Vietnam era almost coming through still. Right. Right. Um, do you remember why that recruiter said that you couldn't be a ranger? So I think there's two things. I think from my understanding of certain recruiters and the, the certain, um, <coughs> positions they need to fill like the mm-hmm. numbers are low on they'll always try to gear up and i don't know if there's a commission base around filling those spots as well i'm not sure but i know they have times where they're short certain mos's mm-hmm. um and the special operations community always have a huge draw for people to come into them anyway so it's always easy to get a guy to come say i want to be a ranger a ceo green beret whatever yeah but 
to get guys to go be a cook as as necessary as that position is and as awesome as those dudes and women were mm-hmm. it's not an easy job to fill right like hey come and work hard hours and be a cook and it's not very glorious it's not enticing to most people so i think they try to fill those other MOSs a lot quicker than they do the special operations sure okay. but then he looked at my body structure like i'm five foot seven soaking wet like not mm-hmm. a big dude so a lot of times you think of you know rangers and seals these big ogres of dudes and they say barrel-chested freedom fighters, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of two twofold reasoning, likely. Okay. Um, and I guess a couple of questions I'm curious of is, did you do a bunch of research on like the the uh, mental side of training, the the uh, you know selection programs and stuff like that before you got into it? And and how did you do versus what you had expected? So I don't believe, like I believe that. Uh, Guys going into the military before they even go in, know if they're going to win or win or lose. Sure. Like any selection process you go through, there's definitely some luck involved. Okay. Hundred um, percent. But I think beforehand, part of it, like I grew up working on farms, like driving to school at four thirty on a four wheeler, going milk cows, and then coming home, going to school, going back to the farm, like, and then having a large family, and then that Finnish background, that sisu we talk about quite right. a bit, like that intestinal fortitude. Like I cannot quit. Right. It's just something inside of me. I just won't. Um, so that was already in, like, I, I didn't have the ability to quit going in. Yeah. So I think that was partially the reason why I was successful. And then I think because I'm smaller, you have to fight a lot harder than an average size dude. Sure. So there's just that natural ability, like to make it, you gotta, you gotta be bigger, like in other areas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in the mental game, I studied more for some of the tests and then physically, like I was small, but I, every PT test, I maxed out everything I could. Mm-hmm. So I'd always, I'd always pull my weight. And then every training engagement I had for selection of any kind, I'd always, I'd always make sure I was picked up other people's slack to where they noticed me. My peer group even noticed me. Sure. Because then they're, they're also kind of elevating me as a person. Right. So when you have, like you have, uh, you get peered. So certain schools, you get peer evaluations. I always want to make sure there wasn't a, a margin of error. They knew that I was a cut for the job and B, I would support them at all costs. Yeah. So there was never a question like, is he going to be a good dude to serve and work with? Right. Um, but again, I think it goes back to that big, big family mentality that, you know, big family working on farms, growing up in kind of a scrappy household, mm-hmm. you already kind of set up for success versus a lot of people with one or two kids didn't really have a lot of hardship. Right. And we had a, I mean, a pretty good life, honestly, like yeah. you can't complain too much. For sure. But fist fights behind the barn is yeah. a thing for sure. It's a Tuesday, man. <laughs> um, but thinking about that, did you, so you knew you weren't going to quit going into it, but I still feel like... I, I've never experienced anything like that. So yeah. I guess to me, there's like this, uh, mystique around it, right. Which you probably get yeah. a lot, but what I want to know myself is, you know, you're not going to quit, but do you end up pushing yourself like to what you think your limit is? Or do you go 10 times beyond that? But you just, you know what I mean? Is that, I don't so, know how to phrase that question even. So if I heard you correctly, I got a little story I can tell. Cause sure. I, this is a kind of funny moment for me where I did quit mentally. Okay. So this is mountain phase in ranger school. Okay. And it's obviously like you're being, deprived of sleep you know you're you're starving and you're having to lead or be part of a chain of command where you you're made to do certain things and so you're patrolling you're up all night like one time we walked for like i don't know 14 hours up this mountain and you have your rucksack on a lot of gear your socks are always wet just everything's miserable right and it's mm-hmm. winter, winter time in georgia uh in the mountains it gets cold um i remember one night we had a a mission and whoever had the 240, which is a relatively large machine gun, it's like 27 pounds. Mm. Um, so we always got to switch gear. So you always take turns carrying different machine guns and, and mortar systems, whatever they are. And I remember um, the people before me, they had the sling wrapped around the barrel and they burnt it off. 
Okay. So then we switched over right after that. So I had to carry this machine gun with no sling. So it usually goes over your shoulder, you know, kind of carries the weight, you know, disperses it around your body. And uh, so there's no sling, so I'm just kind of holding this gun, and it gets it gets heavy. You got ammunition on and everything else, right? So I'm 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 beat. I'm tired. And at one point, I literally dropped this 240, and I so everything's tied off to your body with 550 cord. Yeah. And I drugged this machine gun up a hill, huh. like for like an hour. Right. And I was kicking and like screaming in my mind, just just pissed off. I was yeah. angry. So in my mind, I was I was broke, but for some reason, my body kept going. Yeah. But mentally, I was done. I was just. I don't care anymore. Right. Because if I got caught doing that, I guarantee it'd have been, they call major minuses, probably got booted for it. Sure. But I just did not care. Right. It got there at the end of the day, but uh, I wasn't proud of that moment, but it was just mm. one of those things where it just goes to show, like you're just broke off. Right. Okay. So you do get to that point, even though you go into it, you know, you're never going to quit. You still get to a pretty uh, low point. From oh that. yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. But still, is there, is there to an element of you succeed or you accomplish way more than you initially anticipated and you are uh, built confidence from that too? So I don't, I don't know. And I think the reason I say that is because you don't really know what's coming. Okay. Like you have this idea of it's going to be hard. You go through some schools, but until you go through them, like literally the way I look at it, even life now is everything's built of small building blocks. Sure. Yeah. So every, every business opportunity we have, it's not go solve that business problem it's what singular issue can i deal with right now Mm -hmm. and you build on that so one success leads to another success and then you get there one day yes end of the day start over again tomorrow so you never think about the school you think of singular days okay so i think that helped me is just compartmentalizing it's like you don't have to graduate the school all at once you graduate one day at a time and each day is comprised of those little singular events right so that that's kind of those those systems kind of help me get through a lot of those uh harder times okay that makes sense uh and then what about questioning the status quo within that world is that a, a thing you found or is it more or this is a different season of your life no that definitely happened but i think you have to con- you have to conform and okay. some of those environments more than you'd want so you have to kind of you know swallow your pride and what you want right because it's not about you and so there's always that kind of that eating the pride eating what you believe and, and what you want to do because mm. in those environments they don't care yeah like for instance they I remember one time we had this formation and ranger indoctrination program to get into ranger regiment. And then like, you have to have a pen, a pencil, rope, a ranger handbook, which whatever the requirements to, to have on your body at all time or your persons. Like one guy didn't have a pencil and he got kicked out of the program. Hmm. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing in the world. Like I just happened to have it on me, but I got lucky. Cause I guarantee you another day they did a, you know, some kind of inspection. I was probably missing something, but they just didn't happen to check that day. Right. Right. So they're just this weird element of you have to swallow any any and all pride you might have to okay. get through those kind of schools. Afterwards, did you eventually understand the pencil thing? Or does it still not make sense it, to you? I, it still doesn't. So okay. I still fight some of those. I get why there's certain standards. But now for me, I think of in that moment, that guy was probably more squared away than I was. Yeah. He's probably stronger than I was. Probably a better asset to the military, honestly. But now because his life and trajectory was all wanting to be in this unit. And now you burn that bridge with this young, young guy. So I think of it in a dollars and cents and a kind of that schema is like, he's an asset. You just burn because of this. So now everybody loses. Right. So was there another way to take care of that? Is there a better criterion to a requirements or criterion? Maybe you want the right word for that. Yeah. Um, to evaluate those kind of people where it's more objective, not very opportunistic and luck. Right. Um, so yeah, I got very frustrated in those moments seeing that happen. Mm-hmm. I'm the same. Yeah. What, what I sometimes wonder where it comes from, but when I see in what in my head are injustices, it, like that is the one thing that really, really riles me up. So yeah. again, maybe you didn't necessarily, I don't know. I just struggle with that. If I see somebody 
getting retro or if myself, if I'm reprimanded for something I didn't do or I feel is unjust, yeah. that is like the one thing that will take me to an anger level. Uh, Other than that, I'm fairly calm, but and I, I, so I'm just curious where that comes from, but maybe it is that same thing. I just like that. I think, it, I think it comes from being in a larger family, right? Even sharing food or something like that. Like you had one more piece of pizza than I did. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know. When your dad's mad, he yells at five kids before he gets to you anyway. So right. hopefully he's uh, settled down before that. Yeah. Anyways, something I just thought of, but yeah. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Yeah, I, again, the, the status quo portion within the military and then thinking about that pencil thing and, and still kind of doesn't quite make sense to you. Is there a... I'm just wondering, is there, a, is there is there an option, a better option? And it maybe it is that more objective side of things, but the trouble is if you do... Actually, thinking about that, is there an objective side? Like, can you can you get kicked out just because somebody doesn't like you? Likely, uh, at face value, no, but they're going to find a reason. Okay. Like, they'll target you for different things because ultimately, if they want to kick a guy out, they're going to find a way, okay. especially through some of those selection schools. Sure. And this is where I believe that... Uh, you start in basic training. You go through airborne school. I went through some other gunnery schools, uh, javelin and some other things. Then I went to um, RIP. And so the whole entire time, you're getting evaluated and documented on what you're doing, who you are, your grades. So I don't believe it's one singular event. They're okay. kind of looking at a snapshot of not just today, but the overview of who is this guy, how is he going to perform out in the real world, in, in a real environment, right? Sure. So I always made sure that I, I wasn't going to have to put all my eggs in one basket. So I thought, well again, go back to that systems based and do one day at a time and perform every day to the best of my ability. And hopefully it's enough to meet the muster on that day. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to, the procrastination theory of like, well, I'll get the best grades at the end of this class. Well, to me, that's not going to fly for this kind of environment. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that's why I had to think a little bit differently on, on how to approach these schools and how to get through the military in general. Um, but even, even at that though, I remember one time we got, uh, when I was brand new to regiment and, uh, we went through a shoot house. So it's a live shoot house and you got guys with guns shooting over your shoulders and moving around corners and through doors. And, um, people do get killed in these environments, mm -hmm. not, not every day, but it happens a couple of times a year at minimum. Um, typically not in the special operations units, but that does happen there too. So it's a very stressful environment. And I'd even say to this day, I was more scared in those training environments than I was overseas, hmm. not of getting hurt, but of of failing in front of my peer group and my leaders. Okay. So that was weird al already. Like after three tours of combat, I would always be more in a little more, uh, yeah, stressed out around training environments hmm. to look bad or to, you know, not perform well. But I remember one where our whole entire team screwed up. So it was like four or five of us and we got smoked for like, it seemed like forever. And it was cold that day and my hands were in these puddles and I was, my feet were up on the striker or Humvee or whatever we had. And my hands were numb and, like I believe the guy leading us screwed up 
and then we all screwed up, but he didn't own it. Right. And it, and it pissed me off. And like going back to your point of like being vindicated in that moment was more, it meant more to me than the physical pain, but I was so angry about, he didn't care about his men at that point. He cared about looking right. Yeah. So I think going taking status quo now, like, yeah, I could have been angry and did the same thing to my guys once I became promoted and became a leader. But, um, like one guy who's told me one day he was in Iraq and he's one of my privates. He, uh, he's like, Hey, these boots, when I drive, they're uncomfortable. I sweat in them. He's like, I just, I don't have as much control over the pedals. He's like, can I slip my shoes on when, when I'm driving? I'm like, it makes sense to me. Let's do it. Right. Right. But it's not a regulation that the army would be cool with. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, bring your boots with, so when you get out of the striker, if we're getting shot at and you have to jump out, like I'll take the blow of you having shoes on, I'll deal mm-hmm. with it. But if it's like, we're done with the mission, we're getting out. It's a cool, collected, and controlled environment. Put your boots back on. Like, right. check that box. But when rubber meets the road, when it really matters, yeah, wear your shoes, man. Yeah. So I always try to find ways to be creative to make sure my men felt supported right. in, in what they're doing. So I kind of took the challenges that I faced and didn't like mm-hmm. and made sure that I can change the environment below me, which is not a lot of wiggle room, but I think that's the biggest takeaway for me on some of those environments. Okay. And, and again, even the non-minimal wiggle room, you being willing to empathize with that person and understand what it was like when you were there versus saying, well, this is something I had to go through. Yeah. That goes a long ways, I think. Yeah. Well, and then that lent itself very well to like the state patrol when I decided to get out of the military, um, transition, got a degree in uh, criminal justice and transportation logistics. And I remember when I got to the state patrol Academy, well, for starters, their selection process is ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to get into these agencies, especially hmm. the state patrol and um, when I finally got to go to this arming class, which is like an eight week class, and they send over half the field to the, or the half the class of the field for uh, extended part of, like a year, mm-hmm. then you come back to an academy. I'm like, hey, I want the job, but I'm not actually willing to go to the field. And this is why. And I kind of painted a picture of, hey, I've already been through combat deployments. I've gone through leadership schools. I've gone through a lot of the requirements to where I feel like I don't need that extra exposure in this, in this cadet role mm-hmm. to the point of, I, I actually won't do it. I'll right. quit and I'm okay with that. I don't know why I had such a hard stance there, but they're like, well, and I, and I went through the academy and the academy to me was easy. Like driving was the hardest part huh. just because the, I grew up going off road and doing like a bunch of stupid stuff with vehicles. You didn't train yourself on the mechanics of a vehicle and in the, in the physics and how vehicles actually operate on the road. And some of the things they teach you in a, you know, a, a very, like an EVOC course, right? Evasive yeah. driving course. So that was the hardest part, but most of it was pretty easy for me uh, okay. in the physical aspect. And I remember uh, they would do room checks because you lived in the barracks for five days a week and then you'd go home. And they do room inspections. And if you had your wall walkers jacked up, they'd toss them. And, you know, that was like a Tuesday for me. I'd been through a lot harder schools in the military. And there's a few other guys that had been, you know, 82nd Airborne and another couple of guys from regiment. And so we'd kind of screw with each other. Like your wheels on your bed are supposed to be like their caster wheels. Mm-hmm. And if they're off center a little bit from being perfect in line with the other one they would toss your bunk or whatever yeah so after we cleaned all our rooms we'd sneak back once in a while and screw with somebody else so their room got tossed right well all of a sudden we got smart like we're we're doing more work because we're screwing with each other why don't we screw with somebody else and then one day i remember that one of the cadre came in and um after they tossed our rooms and towards the end of the academy they wanted to be more f- like fine motor thought process so like it's they would only toss like a, a drawer if something was jacked up on that drawer well in the room across from you in the barracks there was a uh, two beds in each room and two wall lockers and all that stuff. Um, and you had to be dressed, right? Dress mirrored exactly across the hallway. Well, in the Academy, there was a female cl- uh, room across from ours. So two males and two females. Mm-hmm. And I remember they kept tossing a certain drawer and I, and I caught on why, well, 
Males underwear and females underwear are just different. Right. You can't actually fold in the same way. You got a G string and you got a pair of male grunts. You just can't do it, right? Right. So me being the smart ass that I was, I grabbed a pair of grunts from her and I'm like, hey, with all due respect, like I don't know how we actually should be folding these the same. And I had an alternative motive here because I had noticed some other trending environmental things I didn't agree with. Yeah. Trending, they're trending people the exact same way, but were built differently. Okay. And both needed and both just as equally valuable in that role, I believe to my core, but they're just different ways to, to control situations based off your size. Uh, and that kind of, like a bigger guy can likely take down a suspect potentially or a subject in a different manner than, than a guy like me even. Like I'm not going toe to toe the same way that a six foot eight guy, it just doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So they're training like 100% precise, exact same theories across the board. And so anyways, they took this scenario and we got smoked and they made us do pushups because you know, it wasn't the respectful thing to do. Right. But a couple of days later, they call us out in this, they call it the pit. It was like the performance improvement tabernacle or something. And it's an area where you got smoked, usually push-ups, sit-ups, whatever. And one of the lead tech instructors walked through and he's like, do you guys know why the spaceship is the way it is or like the size it is? And we're like, no, we don't know. Why do we care? Right. And he went on this long segue, this story and he essentially said, you know, the spaceship's the size it is because there's certain components that had to be built off site. And essentially the roads were so wide. So they had to make sure that the road that could be in, you know, transported from the, the manufacturer site to the assembly site. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the roads essentially had to be created by two oxen because one oxen, you know, uh, would go over the road. So two together would just keep more of a straight line and get more, get more efficiency out of the system. But he went on this long segue. He's like, sometimes we don't realize why we do things just over time, we create a path and we don't realize that sometimes that path isn't always right. Mm-hmm. But he actually owned the fact that they didn't evaluate certain ways they did things. So he's like, hey, we're no longer going to splay our grunts in our wall locker. Hmm. He's like, because they're not the same. We can't really do dress right dress anymore. So after he pulled me aside, he's like, hey, I know you try and do something. You had a bigger a bigger motive here. And so he actually talked to me. He's like, hey, we've actually reconsidered some of our training curriculum, which is already on their docket to reconsider. Hmm. But he's like, for the first time, we're going to reconsider like the integration of females into this environment. Because since it started, they never actually trained to having females on campus, which is awesome to see. Like, Again, we should have female and males both as cops together. Right. But when there is a difference on some things, we should consider that. Yeah. Um, but anyways, it was just it was cool kind of seeing like, hey, it actually played out to my benefit this time. Hmm. And so that's crazy that from that incident, he made that correlation and made them reconsider. Uh, how did they make that connection? Uh, so this is one of those guys too that had a pretty pivotal, like as far as law enforcement, he made an effect on thousands of troopers. Okay. He thought differently. He was a... If I remember right, a retired um, sergeant major from the Marine Corps. So very, very regimented in nature, very, I'd say rules and process oriented. Okay. But he thought differently. Like just the way he operated was very mechanically minded. But he he understood that you have to have hours and hours and hours of training to get some of these things perfected. But he knows that in the real world, law enforcement officers don't have the time and usually the capacity to train that much. So he's like, how do I make it so it's functional for them? Mm-hmm. So he always thought a bit differently just in general. And he really touched a lot of people to a, in, in a good way. Um, so he's always trying to think of like truly not his role, but how do you affect people the best? So he was always looking for better ways to serve and to train. So he'd already been considering like what we're doing for, he was a, they call them DT, I think, or control tactics trainers. And so he's always trying to think of better ways. You know, what are the tactics on the street right now? Where are the knives being headed? What are the things that the, you know, different people are doing around the country to hurt, whether it's other people or cops and when you're trying to arrest them and stuff. So like an instance, they were doing like the way that they were handcuffing people. Um, 
on most handcuff cases, when you pop off the the leather handcuff top, it would make a big click. Mm -hmm. And that was actually trained into some people that had been handcuffed or arrested multiple times. They heard that. That was the moment where they would actually flee the, like statistically speaking, they would flee the most then at that Hmm. exact point. So he was like, why don't we train to that? Before we actually make that click, let's get them in a position of where we can have full control of them before we handcuff. Even you have your feet spread apart, you've got them in a, in a position where their hands are interlocked behind their back and they're twisted around, you have a good hand on that. They start moving, all you have to do is push forward, tap their leg, and they're going over. So take control of them before you even think about handcuffs. Okay. So he was that kind of guy in general. But he said that was a kind of a catalyst for him to realize, like, we didn't consider some of the downstream effects of the integration piece. As much as it was needed, there are some things you should think through that matriculate out in everything that we touch. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... So I'm thinking about the, uh, like the way your brain works, right? That you were different, yeah, right? And you had the fifth grade teacher that thought you were, that could see that you were different, but it feels like that Ross has talked and we've talked yeah. even like you're, a, you're, you're an ideas guy. Sure. Like you're always coming up with ideas and always thinking of things and, and, and not always are they the best thing ever, but either way it may lead you down the road to the thing that is the solution, right? For sure. Or whatever it might be. Uh, where do you know where that come from, comes from or what inspires you to think like, again it's that outside the box thinking but what where does that come from and how does that play out for you on a active basis yeah so i'm, I'm always coming with random stuff to like drives my wife nuts yeah. like, oh, what about this and she's like oh that's stupid like because it's just different like some people have to see something before it makes sense to them sure and there's nothing wrong with that yeah but i think when i see a problem it's more like how could i solve this and it's like a game to me and my, uh, my younger brother, Kirk, and I will just scheme on the most ridiculous things. And yeah. honestly, like some would actually be a good idea. And I've seen some come to fruition that are like killing it now. Yeah. And some they're still in the making, but they will be successful. Okay. But I think just in general, is it's not so much about thinking of an idea to go build something or like to create an invention because I don't have the time and bandwidth right now. But mm-hmm. it's like I truly enjoy just it's like people write music. I like to think about and write ideas for businesses or ideas mm. for like products mm-hmm. um, and some that I'll probably go after at some point, mm-hmm. but it's just part of the asking why of like, why are we doing what we're doing right now? Um, the way we're doing it, we're told to do it. Sure. But, but does that make sense even? So I think even one of the products we built that's in the marketplace today actually thought of the idea in my sauna. Um, and that's one of the areas I love to, when I go to sauna, it's always with that free thinking creativity space really kind of comes to lot, comes to life. But, um, which is why I love the studio calling top bench studio in here. Yeah. Right? But, uh, yeah, this idea came from the idea that I love blue collar communities just in general. I think some of the hardest working people come out of these communities and like the salt of the earth. Yeah. Um, you know, small family owned businesses are like the core of America still. And, and quite frankly, much of the world, but I feel we're being passed up. Uh, we're not adapting fast enough to keep up. And there's this weird, weird tension that I'm feeling right now. And I have concern, right? And so this one happened to be for the construction space specifically. Um, so it kind of came out of that idea of necessity where I feel like out of this, this burden to help, um, this idea came out and, and it's still a grind and still, you know, it's a work in progress, but it's in the marketplace and it's being used and it's, and it's a successful tool. Like companies that are using it, there's a lot of power there. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they're paying a, like, a thousandth of the price they should be paying based off other, excuse me, products in the marketplace that solve similar issues for other business lines. Mm-hmm. It should be charged a lot more for. Right. So I don't think the value is truly realized yet at scale yet. Sure. And that's load tracks. Yeah, correct. Yeah. 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 Which is, uh, can you give me the high arching picture of that, of what the, the business model and what that looks like? Sure. I mean, at its core, it's a track and trace solution for dump truck companies. Uh, right now everything's tracked on paper for by and large. Uh, material goes from uh, a supply place like a pit or a quarry and it goes to a job site 
we got the logistics between point A and point B. You have to track the material and the time and all the other details to make sure people are getting paid, drivers are getting paid, invoices are sent out correctly. Um, and when you have things on paper, there's too many touch points, too much margin of error in general. Um, so we thought if we remove the paper from that process and allowed both sides of the equation to have instant access to that data, they have better ability to you know do their functions, but also start forecasting and run their businesses more effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm just asking in case somebody was curious because you were hinting at it and if yeah. somebody was curious what the business was and what it looked yeah. like. Um, but, but it's yeah. not about like that tool though. The whole idea was like, I want to, I want to provide a better way for people to run their businesses because they work so hard and they rob their families of time, like quality time with their family or that some of this busyness, that's what I like status quo there. Mm-hmm. They, I would hear people say like, you know, we, we drive all day then we're back at home and like some owners were like, our, our family does this. We watch TV together. You know, we do in the evening together. We are processing these tickets for hours on end. I'm like, that's a task that should not be done by a human just shouldn't be mm-hmm. you're wasting your time so that's where kind of that it's not about a product it's about giving time back there sure sure yeah that makes sense like um, it's we've always done it this way right well it's not broken well okay it is broken you just don't see it right that's my mentality yeah the uh i just had somebody on here recently who said that the in like the 1880s sometime in the 1800s the u.s patent office wrote to congress and said we should close down the patent office that there's nothing else to be invented we found all that there is to be found are you kidding me (laughs) i mean i guess i'd have to look it up make sure but either way sometime in the 1800s wow they said that that we found all there is to be found that nothing else can be invented that's out there that guy hopefully was fired yeah (laughs) it's a small overstep on information i guess but right but yeah, just think about that. Like you said, if, if that guy was not an asking why kind of guy, right? Because even today, it's so so weird. Inventions that have changed the course of our, our, our country and whatever else, even minor things, windshield wipers, stuff like that. They're so simple now, but somebody had to sit there like you and say, why, 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 why to the 10th degree yeah. for anything like that to happen. And I think if I did life again, I'd probably go to school <clears throat> to be an engineer. Okay. I think I have enough engineer friends now and see what they do. I'd get bored on a lot of it. But I think one guy phrased it, and actually I think Jordy mentioned one time, he's like, I'm not smart than anybody else. It's nowhere to, what questions I ask Google, right? Like (laughs) there is some tools I think you get equipped with in engineering school to do a little more damage with the why potentially. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I think I would go back and likely take some classes and maybe even get a degree in engineering. Yeah. Because I truly enjoy that environment so much. Would you ever consider that still? I don't know. Um, I love what I do right now. And I think I get to do a lot of the same things regardless of the degree set. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, worked really hard to get where I'm at and, you know, been through a lot of different uh, schools of hard knocks. So as valuable as college is, uh, I think there's multiple ways and multiple paths to get to the same end result sometimes. Sure. And I think I took a little bit harder course potentially, Mm -hmm. but, uh, at the end of the day, you know, especially in business development, what I do now, I get to work with a lot of end clients. So I get to see a lot of things and ask a lot of questions to a lot of subject matter experts. So what I do is I take all these nuggets of expertise and I put them in my tool belt. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I heard something over here that honestly would be better over here. Right. So just always asking the why, but you have more, you have more ammunition to help equip people with. And I love serving people. That's kind of who I am. I just always, it's kind of been in my DNA. Mm-hmm. I think my mom showed me that as she's got a servant's heart and I've kind of taken after her to a fault, honestly. Right. But I think when I serve, we get to serve clients. It's, I, it's not even about like the money or anything. I love problems and I love to help solve, solve them. So it's probably the, the feeling of, you know, accomplishing something maybe. I don't know. Right. But then we talked uh, earlier about the five love languages and you said yours is acts of service, right? And yeah. it, isn't it true that you typically will show your love or your appreciation, however you want to word it, through the way that you receive it? Yeah. And I, that's why you yeah. love to serve maybe? Yeah, potentially. Have you thought about that? 
Yeah, a little bit here and there, and it's yeah. and it's weird because too like you think if you knew all this stuff, would you find a spouse that their love language is like complementary to yours? And right. it doesn't seem like that's always yeah. the case. No. <laughs> like we, we, weird enough, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, maybe we do compensate that way potentially. Why? I don't know. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's like almost, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but for sure my wife is quality time. Mine is words. She can just tell me I'm sweet and I'm good to go for a week. And uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas she needs quality time, which obviously you appreciate that time. And it's just not the same language that you speak. Uh, and it seems like the people that I've asked uh, almost, they're not married to each other. They're, they're two separate things. And it takes yeah. a lot of diligence to, uh, really put yourself in their shoes and say, this is what speaks to them. And I need to make sure I make this a priority. It's hard to do when totally. you're, you're so used to that. This is how I show you my appreciation. Sure. You know? No, that makes sense. And I know like I thrive in chaotic environments. Like I, I'm like, I'm on fire and I'm alive and I, I like it. If it's slow and very regimented and stuff, I get bored and mm. just like atrophy kicks in, man. So for my wife, she likes like schedule. She likes routine and just having that and that structure. And honestly, I know I, I do better in a home where like in that scenario, cause our home growing up was pretty chaotic with mm-hmm. you know, not many kids, but so I do appreciate the fact that she brings that, the semblance of, uh, of structure, but yeah. And like business, if I had a, just a just stamp a widget all day job, I'd go nuts. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think about that too. Yeah. Again, if you, if you could look at the next 40 years of your life and say, this is going to happen mm-hmm. for the next 40 years and I'm going to take my two weeks of vacation, I'm going to do this Monday to Friday. And I can't even imagine they're, they're just being stuck in what, you know, this is it for 40 years. I don't know. How, how could you handle that? No, that's a good point. And that's where I think having my mentality of asking why is helped me like career wise, because I, I don't ever feel like I have to be searching for a career because the markets are always adapting. Yeah. It's always going to adapt. So you look at like fast food restaurants, my gut says in five, six years, maybe not in rural areas, but most, you know, most major cities won't have people working fast food anymore. It'll be all, all automated. Mm-hmm. So you look at people like, ah, you know, you're, you're taking people's jobs. At some point you have to adapt. Mm-hmm. You have to adapt to the environment you're in. And some people don't want to do that right. because they don't know how to ask the questions. They're just check in, check out. Yeah. So I do feel bad on one hand, but ultimately like it's, it's already happening in front of us. So if you're not seeing it, it's, it's tough to, you know, what, what can you tell a person when it's already being seen everywhere around you? Things are being automated. It's being talked about. Uh, we're expecting too much for too little output. So like fat 15 bucks for, you know, what, what I believe is a stepping stone job is leading these people to this. You're getting lured into complacency mm-hmm. and apathy. So I think, yeah, just in general, the people that can ask questions and being willing to adapt, um, be creative, mm-hmm. have a lot more, uh, you know, they're more marketable, I guess in sure. general, right? Yeah. Do you, do you feel like there's this, this concept of job security and, and all this kind of stuff, right? But do you feel like zero fear over you and your future from a marketplace or a, a career perspective along those same lines? Like, I guess I have the feeling that I don't care about any of it because no matter what I'll adapt, I'll overcome, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll work in this. If I have got to dig ditches, I'll dig ditches. It doesn't matter. Like you'll find a way, right? Do you feel like that? So I had a lot of fear early on. Okay. Like when I was a, my wife and I adopted our boys Sure. and we went through some trials in life that I never expected to come. And you know, I felt like I was wronged in the process and it was hard. Like I went out of law enforcement a lot faster than I was expecting. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I went into construction after law enforcement, but that abruptly ended. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sole provider of a home and all that stuff. And all of a sudden you're, you're having to, for the first time in your life, kind of retool on a dime. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you just, you find the first thing in front of you, you start working, you work hard and 
you know, people, when you work hard, you're going to be given more opportunity to work hard again. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of keep building yourself up in that regard. Uh, but it showed me all of a sudden that like, I don't have to be dependent on a singular person or, yeah. or a system to provide. And that was a big catalyst for me in the mind shift of like, I put a lot of, a lot of faith in the system. Um, but anyway, so more of that story is I believe that, you know, we're given responsibility to steward what we have today wisely. Yeah. And we have a choice to make every day. And I'm not looking to tomorrow per se. I mean, I'm planning and I'm doing things, but, but I put my faith in God and, and then working hard today. Mm-hmm. And if I look too far in the future, it can be kind of stressful and, and it can almost be uh, debilitating in nature sometimes for some people to think like, oh, in two years, what do I have to be doing? And, and what if this, what if that? I mean, COVID 3.0, like I don't care. It right. doesn't matter anymore. Right. Yeah. There, but there is a, uh, for sure. As like, as a father, like you have two fostered kids. Is that right? Yeah, adopted now. Ado- or adopt, adopted yeah. kids. I mean, you have the same instincts, right? The, yeah. the provide, protect, yeah. uh, you know, build up your winter's bulk, whatever you sure. need to do. Uh, but f- on the on the flip side, I do feel like you get to the point where you're like, doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to provide. If I need to be, you know, hunting deer and chopping down firewood, like we'll make this work, right? Yeah, and I believe like you can adapt to any environment if you want to. Yeah. And it's all about your personality, or not personality, but your perspective. And I think that's one thing that, you know, growing up, we, we never went without food, mm-hmm. but there was times we didn't have a ton of money, but sure. we always made it through. Things always worked out. And my, my dad did have this weird ability to always find a way. Yeah. And, and clearly God had his hand in all of this stuff, mm-hmm. but he just had this ability to pull things out of a hat somehow. Mm-hmm. And when we shouldn't be able to play hockey one year, like, and this might seem trivial to some, but like all of our friends are playing hockey and I knew for a fact there was not money for hockey. Right. And all of a sudden he finds a random odd job or something to pay for hockey or something else happens and something, you know, allows us to play. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, like we didn't take vacations for many years, but all of a sudden his work like paid for a, a Texas South Padre, I don't know, South, somewhere on the coast, you know, vacation. Mm-hmm. So, but the idea is we didn't have a lot of money, but the perspective was we'd, we'd, we'd be fine. We'd get by. Um, and then going to combat and seeing some of the things I saw in combat in third world countries um, between Afghanistan, Iraq, and some other areas. Um, and then a cop too, man. I'll tell you what, some of the houses you go in, uh, and that's really what kind of with the foster thing, that was tough because I'd go into homes with like infants crawling on the floor with like meth needles and heroin needles and, you know, significant domestic abuse and, and severe neglect and malnourishment. And it, it I'd leave and I'd just be like, like it was hard to process because you're on to the next crime scene or next event or whatever, but the the amount of trauma you carry with you, it's, it's, it's hard to deal with that on a daily basis. Yeah. And you start like internalizing that. Um, so in that environment it was hard, but now I've, I've grown past all of that to where I can use that as a, as a powerful tool for like the perspective shift as bad as something might seem today, it could always be worse. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, give my grandma a plug. Um, she, she always used to say, and she still says it, like, as bad as things they would get, like, she'll always be like, oh, and this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Her grandma-loving voice that she would use, right? Should actually record that soon. Yeah. In hindsight here. But uh, that that is so true because as, as hard as something is right now, you know, unless you die, which you, you can't control anyways, like this, tomorrow's going to come. Yeah. And so I try to apply that perspective. Like, it could be so much worse. So it doesn't, nothing can be that severe right now. Right, right. No, it's all good stuff. I, uh... I was excited to have you on here. And, yeah. and before we even started, you talked about again, like how do you fit this podcast? And there's yeah. a part of me like, I don't even care. Like, I just want to talk to you, yeah. right? I don't care how yeah. it fits, but you thinking about the status quo things. But for me, it is that just the different way of thinking that I really appreciate. Yeah. Uh, just because it's a breath of fresh air, maybe. I don't yeah. Know, yeah to me, it's, 
I think there's a huge benefit in, in being willing to think differently and, and, and go through some of those things. So I guess, yeah, just appreciate you breaking some of that stuff down for sure. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't mean it's the right way, you know, and by any means, that's one thing I used to be a lot more bullheaded on earlier on in my life is yeah. like, I would ask different kind of questions, see things differently, but it was always like I was right. And, mm. and mm-hmm. now I've gotten to maybe a little more spot of maturity to where I'm not saying I'm right by any means, but mm-hmm. I do, I will say I'm right on this. There's always more than one way to skin that cat. For sure. So I think that's just having a, the ability to pause long enough to, to ask questions against your situation. So, you know, I think about like a lot of family fights that happen, drama and whatnot. It's like, we get so entrenched and ingrained in like our position and we dig our heels in. Yeah. And it's like, who wins? Right. Like you both, you both lose in this, this situation or at work. Right. Or I watch people that are like every single day, they punch the time clock, punch out and they're miserable. And it's, it's like, what's, what's the point? So I guess my point of all this is I, I really hope people start asking questions about what their environments look like. Yeah. Cause as bad as it is today, it could be different. You For could sure. change your environment, whether it's a, your job or things at your home, like your, your, your body physique, like you could always change those. I'm not saying to go and radically change it tomorrow, but start asking different questions about why am I doing what I'm doing? If I'm not happy here, like there's other jobs out there. Yeah. There's, there's better ways to, to eat, to exercise, to get hobbies. Like there's so many things you could do to change your life. Um, that I think if we start asking more questions about the why, I think it'll change the behaviors, which will lead to better results that, you know, hopefully will bring better peace, joy, and happiness in people's lives. Mm-hmm. I think that does speak to that, that same why question speaks to like the, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think if it's like the origin of this podcast again for me, cause I was the young kid that asked why 20 mm-hmm. times and, and, and think that I, I really appreciate being internal and thinking about things. Although I found value and appreciation in the, in the, uh, the Finlander who, who works hard and doesn't ask why, because there's honor. And in, in that too, like I don't ask why I own this construction company and provide for my kids, but I know it's important and this yeah. is what I do. Right. So I think there, there, there I, I, I struggle with that, but also I just, again, maybe because it's the way I am, but I just find huge value in asking the big questions, right? Well, it's not confused. Like from my perspective, like farming, for instance, I believe like if you could be profitable running a farm, I would love to go farm right now. It's the best job I ever had. It was the hardest job. So it's not like I'm against hard work and against some of that cultural stuff. That's not easy. Right. But like if, if I'm in that position and, and I'm fighting, let's say, a new technology that will drive millions more in profit, which obviously is not sustainable in farming, but mm-hmm. let's say a re- large revenue source could be brought from this, but we've done it a hundred years this way. Well, there has to be, in my opinion, some questions asked against how we're doing it. Sure. But at the same time, respecting the history and the platform in which they've been, you know, done this for eons, right? Right. Because there's so much um, of, of kind of who we are that's rooted in that history. So I think there's a balance and there's tension there and we should fight that tension. Right. But I'm not, I don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater. I don't want to disrespect, you know, the ancestors that put the time, the blood, sweat and tears in to give what we have today. Mm -hmm. Like look at our country and it seems like it's in flames right now. And that's, I believe by and large, like a a, a slim minority actually, they're screaming Mm -hmm. the loudest right now. I think the bulk of our country still has a lot of respect for, you know, authority and each other and, and for the nation itself. But I think in general, if, if we can't stop long enough to ask questions about the other side of the political spectrum and all these kind of things, we're just going to keep getting more tense, more and more, you know, you know, anger and hatred towards each other in a sense. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. So I think just in general is like respecting each other, respecting, you know, history of what we're, you know, we've been given mm-hmm. 
and then hopefully stewarding it wisely into the future, which is like a, a summation of all this stuff. It's not one way. It's it's how can we bring all these ideas together, honoring the past yet bringing and adapting to the future. Yeah. So it's just a fine line, and you gotta you gotta strike somehow, and it's not easy. It's like a, it's an art form. Right. Uh, and I th- as you're talking about all that, I think to myself that there is uh, even like. Uh, things have formed over the last thousands and thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the marriage, you know, these different things that are, have been there forever that are beneficial. There's a reason they're there. There's a reason that typically a monogamous couple works out the best or mm-hmm. whatever, right? There's, there's things that are in place that are, are probably universally good. And I, maybe it's okay to question those things and just explore that for a bit. But I, I think you go back to the fact that, Hey, this is normal and this, or this is uh, structural and this is, this is beneficial, but asking why in dysfunctional things, I think is what's important. Sure. Right. Sure. And, and being able to recognize like, clearly this is bad. Be willing to ask the tough question and, and tell the hard truths of, uh, this is a negative thing. We should readjust to this. And it's not always about a negative thing. It's not always about a, again, a, a bad home mm-hmm. setting. It can be just about how do we improve the workplace or whatever. I mean, there's so many ways to go, to go about it, but I don't know. I think it's having that, maybe that needle. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Walking that line of, I don't need to question whether or not me loving my child is a great thing. Sure. Uh, but I should question whether or not this abusive relationship is a, is a good thing. Yeah. But, so let's challenge that for a moment though. So like, uh, a, something in your life, like a pillar, sure. like a loving a child right. should be there. Yes. Right. But if you shake a pillar, it should get stronger. Sure. So if something in your life is important to you and you question it, it shouldn't be like, well, I don't love my ch- children, but how do I love my children all sure. of a sudden? So it starts to change the, d- the dynamic and the narrative you speak over your your relationship with them. Yeah. So if you love your children, does your life actually reflect that? Yeah. Am sure. I working too much? Am I showing them the love they really need to see? Like right now they need more stern dad. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think when you challenge that situation, it changes the way you approach it. Sure. It doesn't yeah. mean that the principle is wrong. Right. But if you challenge it and you ask why against the theory of that, it should strengthen it. Yeah. I like that. So it's yeah. a little bit different view on that, but I do believe you should challenge even what you think is good. Yeah. Because we say we love our spouses and, and I'm guilty of this. Like I'm pointing at myself do my daily activities always show her that she's a priority to her, like yeah. to, to me, right? Right. So I think that's kind of the thing is like, I love my wife unequivocally, mm-hmm. but does she know that all the time? Right, right. And I, I don't remember who said this, and it's, I'm sure it's not a, a, a specific thing to this person necessarily, but they'll frequently ask their clients, this was a psychologist, mm-hmm. they'll ask their clients, what are the three most important things to you? And it's instant for them, family, faith, whatever it is, right? Instantly, they can tell you right now, what are the three most important parts of your life? And then, okay, let's analyze your life. What are you spending the time on? Where is your priorities going? And almost universally, it is not going to those three things, right? Do you do you think about that? Like, again, you talked about that, analyzing your priorities, where are we at? And it's it's a hard balance. But anyways, do you think about that? It is, but you think about what's what's emergent in front of us right now. Our family's like a constant, they'll be there. Mm-hmm. But then we, that brings us to a place of complacency then. Right. Again, going back to, I think it's the exact thing you're, thing you're saying at a deeper level is we get complacent with the things that we, that are going to be there all the time. Right. There's the unconditional love. Well, then it all of a sudden becomes, well, I can kind of keep putting that off because these, these work things are more priority because I'm, I'm trying to support my family and all these things. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't prioritize that because they're always going to be there. Right. Well, what, what if they're not always going to be there? Yeah. So I think that's going back to, we should challenge the idea of what our priorities are. Sure. Um, have you had any, uh, gut wrenching moments with family and your adopted kids that have made you reconsider that or realize that you're not lining up those priorities? Well, I think, you know, when you adopt kids, the whole foster, like, so I grew up in a big family just to start with. And so you always kind of assume you have your, you have a big family or at least kids of your own. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can, 
you can plan your life, but as they say, God's going to kind of direct your steps. And I never imagined that we'd foster parents, quite frankly. Right. Um, and the whole way that happened was kind of crazy in general. But now that, you know, we went through that process, we've adopted boys, we're met with challenges all the time, but what parent isn't, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes I believe the enemy kind of speaks these certain lies and, you know, like, oh, if I had my own kids, well, they are my own kids. Like, they're just as much my kids as if, you know, we had them ourselves. But um, I think that there's been a pride issue. Sometimes it'll kind of creep up there, like that, that they're not true DNA. Sure. Um, but there's no less love that I have for my kids. Um, but I think just in general is understanding uh, that piece there was probably the hardest for me to be a parent, I guess was that part maybe. Yeah. But I think in general is, is, um, dealing with the state and when the whole adoption process, there was, we had to, um, drive the kids two or three times a week to meet their bio parents. So we're always having to interact with the bio parents and they played this card so well, like mm. they're just perfect parents and they're just, the mom, mom wasn't, she was just, uh, had other challenges, couldn't mm. really raise kids. The dad was not a, not a good dude. He was mm-hmm. in out of prison and just played this. He played this I love Jesus card, but everything in his life screamed Satan, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, from very, very strong abuse to kids and, and women and just the activities that followed him everywhere he went. Yeah. But he played this very smiley card, I'm a nice guy, very manipulative in nature. Mm. So we dealt with that every single week. Um, and then working, you know, swinging graveyard shift and having to deal with this guy in the morning was always, I'll be honest, I wanted to punch him many of times. Yeah. Just having to deal with that. Um, because, uh, you know, a year into the process, these kids are mine. We got one out of the hospital and he was always my kid, regardless of where his DNA origins came from. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was a challenge is like protecting my kid from his bio father. Right. The dichotomy there was just weird. And the, it was just a, it's hard to describe, but it's very, very visceral in nature still like the feeling I have there. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, I can, I can understand what you're saying, but to truly go through that would be tough. Yeah. 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 But obviously, you know, it's for a larger end result for the kid and for you guys. And yeah. Yeah. And even that's tough. Cause like I, my prayer was always like these, that, that God's will will be done with these kids that if, if their parents could straighten their lives out that, you know, ultimately to me, that's probably the best thing. But there was that selfish thing. Like I didn't want them to leave. Like I always wanted those kids to be mine once we got, you know, attached to them and whatnot, mm-hmm. the ones that we ended up adopting. And so that was that weird tension of like knowing that objectively they should go back to their bio parents, their bio parents should straighten their lives out. But, you know, again, like there's that selfish side of me that I don't want to get hurt. I don't right. want to lose these kids. Yeah. I don't think that's talked about enough, quite frankly. Right. Right. You know, and I asked you about, do you have moments that have taught you things? I, had, I, I even wrote these down. I had an interaction with my daughter one day who's getting to the age where she can start testing me. Yeah. Uh, she's four. And this is uh, in May, May 23rd. I wrote this down. I had three interactions all on the same day. I was middle of busy, busy work. Uh, and I'll try not to even get too emotional thinking about this but anyways driving with my kids just myself and my kids my wife's at home and we drive by the campground mclean's right here and mm-hmm. she said is the campground open dad and i said no and i just absent-minded i'm thinking about work i got this deal going on she said is the campground closed i said nope just not even thinking she's like why did you say no to both things dad <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right i should have been listening to you actually right um and then later that same night i'm setting my alarms and she's like uh where are you going when you wake up i said i'm going to work she said dad all you do is work 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 and i'm like no i don't remember we just went to the zoo last week and we go to grandma and grandpa's all the time and she's like oh yeah i like that and still it's just like i think i live a fairly balanced life and in her head in that moment she said oh, dad all you do is work and just like holy moly now i'm feeling totally inadequate as a dad right mm. and i put her to bed and i'm like it's hard. It's uh, I was like, Vivs, I love you. And I just like wanted a reciprocal. I love you too, you know, and didn't get it and tried it one more time. Hey, Vivs, I love you. And she said, you already said that dad. 
so anyways i went home i went to bed that night and i'm like holy moly like you need to i don't know again like looking back objectively i think i was living a balanced life but either way that was a good reminder to are you putting your time and your energy into what your priorities are you know and that's tough because we're not taught to live life by design it's just like society kind of speaks a narrative and there's a void in our life to where for instance if i said hey i want to i want to live this type of lifestyle you get married and you say i want to live in a house that's you know very modest and i'm going to live a very modest life we're not going to take lavish vacations we'll do x amount per year Mm -hmm. then you design your career around that and you're very structured live within your means all these kind of principles that i think are good and and you are able to actually have a true like you know real work-life balance so to speak where you can prioritize things you need to and but when we don't do that it's it's so easy to get sucked into this vortex because you intend to do well to provide for your family but you kind of rob them of their time and your time really right because you're trying to provide for them because you haven't really lived life by a design you're not intentional about how we're living and that's i know one of my challenges is same exact thing my kids you know all you do is work Mm -hmm. and i want to show my kids how to work hard i want to show work ethic that you should you know put in a good honest day's work and all these things that are good but at the same time to what end like what's it all for right am i giving back to those that are hurting that are poor that are broke like am i taking care of the orphans and the widows like the things that i think we should be doing as well am i showing those things as well or is it all about the almighty dollar yeah so that's even with our with our work here like in our in the zaratech with the company that i work for is like as as a leader you know understanding who we're even serving what kind of clients we're serving to make sure that the work that we do is going to companies that are doing good for society in general, things that we believe in. And not something we're not going to work with, with people who maybe not agree with, but there's going to be an edge case potentially, but we'll have to work through that. But then how we have our employees work, we want to make sure that's always structured in a way where we're honoring God and honoring each other with our with our craft. So like today I had a guy that was like, hey, I got I to gotta get off to give my wife some support because he's been traveling with me a little bit a few weeks. And like you started justifying and I'm like, no, it's done. Go take your time. Mm-hmm. Send two emails off and get out of here. Like it don't feel like you have to justify it. You work hard. If you need time, go take it. Right. To make sure we're also projecting that life work balance. Perform when you need to. Work super hard when you have to, but don't feel like you have to check a box for the wrong reasons. So like as a culture here, we're trying to project that image. That mm-hmm. that is our core of who we are as a company. Is we can't we can't create a narrative at home how you treat your wife and all those things, but we can help you get set up for success by b- being empowered to do like exactly that. Hey, mm-hmm. I need to support my wife today. Go do that. Right. Right. Yeah. As a co- yeah, that's a good point. Cause as a, as an individual, it's important to ask those questions and really, again, be intentional about mm-hmm. that. But as a company too, right? Yeah. Why wouldn't you foster that within your own organization? Well, honestly, it's kind of so- selfish too, because if you think about this employees that are like over leveraged financially, yeah, or there's a lot of, you know, you're working too much, so you're stressed at home and here. You bring that baggage from home here. Mm-hmm. You bring work baggage home. So it works both directions. So if we can do everything in our power to keep you as a successful human being, not as an employee, but as a successful human being, as a father, as a husband. And again, we only have so much, like, I'll call it control, but the idea of the things we can do to support you. Mm-hmm. There's only so much we can do, but everything we have in our means to do that, we want to because ultimately then you're going to be a better employee as well. Right. Which is ultimately the goal is, like, someone works for an employer to get paid, we both win. Mm-hmm. But life's not always black and white. Like it's, you're you're who you are here and you also bring, you know, the baggage both directions. So you have to be able to think about those things. It's not just black and white. Right, right. I'm curious to get your, your perspective on this. I haven't ever been in a management role. Yeah. Uh, in my head, or if I was to own my own business, which I aspire to do someday, yeah. um, I have this maybe radical, not radical, but either way, in my head, what I could say naive potentially, mm-hmm 
however you want to word it, these thoughts of how I would manage things, how I would run things and how it would play out. And one of them, I ran this by somebody recently and they felt who is a manager and felt it might not be realistic, but is if you can treat your employees as though they are truly volunteers, Mm -hmm. like picture somebody's helping you pour your concrete floor on Saturday. Mm -hmm. You are so grateful. You're buying them pizza. You're doing this. What doesn't even have to be buying pizza, but you, your, your, your heart pours out to them and they feel that. And they, they return that. It's that thing where you're just through the roof grateful for them. Cause at the end of the day, your employee, you're paying them, but they're volunteering their time to be here. And if you truly believe that and feel that in all your heart, that will come out in everything you do and say and feel and they'll feel that yeah. and somebody will be much more excited to work for somebody who truly, truly appreciates them. I, I guess before I go to the next one, what's your thoughts on that? So like my stomach hurts here and that okay. the reason is the reason I say that is I believe in the volunteer mode, mm-hmm. we will immediately be afraid to cause or create tension. Okay. So let's say you're in sales right. and I don't put any boundaries or like expectations of you to, Hey, you need to get five sales this month. Sure. You just go out there and do something. Mm-hmm volunteer time and i appreciate it by the way because i do I, I genuinely do care for my employees and what they're doing right but if i don't put expectations out there at the end of the month they come back and they want to provide because they need to make money right it's an right. exchange of goods for 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 money and yeah they make two sales and yeah. they come looking for a paycheck and i'm like hey you know like we needed five sales we didn't tell me that right so this is weird like you have to have strong expectations and then a ability to hold someone accountable and accountability is not actually a negative term sure but it's always painted with a negative connotation right but if i know exactly what's expected out of me and i'm going to be held accountable for that mm-hmm. but the reward is awesome we both win right but if it's kind of like this half-baked it's almost like being half pregnant sure. almost you just can't do it there has to be there has to be some tension created sometimes right so if someone's not hitting their expectations they're already feeling it likely anyways. Right. But if you don't have the ability to kind of cut through the tension and, and find a way past that to where, Hey, what's going on? Why aren't you meeting these expectations? Mm-hmm. They're going to lose. Right. They're going to be robbed emotionally. Like they, they already probably hurting without even being told. Mm-hmm. But if we don't ever address this because in the volunteer mode, it's kind of hard to do that. It's mm-hmm. this weird dance of like, ah, I don't know sure. if I want to tell them that they're not putting that box in the right way and it might scratch it because, uh, you know, they're helping me because that happens. Right. right. Yeah. But if they're an employee, say, I need that box, you know, that side facing the left, because if it gets damaged or then the client's not going to pay for it, right. then I can't pay you. Everybody in that value chain loses. Okay. So I think sometimes having st- some stringent expectations, because if you don't, it, it lends itself to animosity, to resentment, to this weird toxic environment. Right. So that structure there, I believe, lends more to a positive culture because we, we all know what we're expected. Right. And it's easier to actually fulfill expectations when they're known. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I can see that side of it. Again, if you have a volunteer pouring your concrete floor, you might be less prone to tell them, Hey, I wish you would do it this way because they're there on on a volunteer basis. But I still do believe there is, we, a, um, there is a element of benefit with that mindset. Again, setting the expectations, having a rigidity, but also truly being that grateful that they're there. But again, if they're not fulfilling what you guys need and, and that's clearly communicated, well then of course go your separate ways and you're not going to appreciate that person or you can appreciate them for who they are, but not for that role necessarily. And I, th- uh, I think one thing to kind of piggyback off that thought, just to make sure I wasn't glossing over completely, because I do yeah. agree with elements of that, Right. but I think having the foundations of truth built first and then from on top of that, then it's like, this is not mine. I don't know where Brett got it from, but Brett's the main leader, the president at Zeratech. And I've had a lot of leaders you know, whether it's been military law enforcement, but he's actually one of the best leaders I've worked under just hmm. younger brother, but watching not just because he's my brother, but the things he's doing is 
it's been amazing to watch him obviously a growth of the ranks from starting scrubbing floors to developing software working on major client projects to running a company like mm-hmm. and it's growing and we're doing a lot of awesome things um and obviously he's building a team around him too to support so there's not just a one-man band but one of the things he he's mentioned to me uh to make sure i'm echoing to my you know direct direct reports and whatnot is like when we hire people it's because we believe in them there's a role that they need to fulfill mm-hmm. but ultimately we believe in them so they're valuable sure and we hire them it's not we just want someone to just check a box so we bring them in and we're like hey you know we brought you in because we believe in you our job as leaders now is to uh equip you with the tools you need to do the job empower you to do your job and then get the hell out of your way right and literally that means sometimes moving hell out of your way because sometimes just getting to work some days like you show up but there's just all this extra red bureaucratic tape sometimes that seems to be piled on our desks mm-hmm. so just to start working it's a task and a chore and it's almost more stressful than the actual work so the theory that he was kind of portraying to me the culture is hey our job is to serve our people to where they feel like their job is the easiest in the world it might be hard but it's not it's not like there's stress just to get to your job mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah it does for sure uh and then one other thought and again just thinking about this and i'm curious what your thoughts are because you're in this somewhat of this role or at least uh, uh tangentially in this role is have you read Nassim Taleb's uh, anti-fragile Mm-mm. book? Um, basically, it, it talks about a lot of things, but it talks about the fact that the there's two type of, types of things in the world. Fragile things, when you put stress on them, they break. Mm-hmm. And anti-fragile, when you put stress on them, they get stronger. Sure. And ideally, is putting your life, your finances, everything in your life to be anti-fragile, where you put stress on it, it gets stronger. Uh, more on you as a person, your, your mentalities sure. and your physical abilities and whatever else. But within that, he talks about being... Uh, it's been, it was probably 10 years ago that I read it. So I'm going off memory somewhat or eight years ago within that. He talks about, um, <clears throat> being independent. You don't need an employer, like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever he's worked for an employer. The, his first day of work, he writes a two week notice, puts it in his desk to always remind him that he is in charge. He's in power at any point. If he's not happy, he's not satisfied. He's walking in with that two, two week notice to say, Hey, this isn't for me anymore. Um, and that gives him some freedom. But anyways, I've thought about myself that it, again, along the lines of, um, the, uh, volunteer thing is, is be a advocate for your employee. Like I want the best for you and I don't care if it's with us or not. So the moment, the day you get start, hired here, write your two week notice, put it in your drawer and re- remind yourself like anything I can do to help you, I will do. And whether that's within our structure or with or out of our structure, that's okay. Sure. Um, and, and I want this open door to like, if, if you're not feeling like this fits or not, not even necessarily more on a positive light, like if you want to reach for bigger and better, that's great. And let me know. And I want to help you with that. And let me see if I can connect you with somebody for that. Uh, and keep that within there also to, to keep me in my place. Like I remember that your two week notice is sitting in your desk. If I'm not treating you correctly, bring that to me. Sure. You know, is there, is there, is there, I think I could expand further on that, but I guess it just got reaction to that. Yeah, I love it. And I think part of it is it's not this, some people might go, well, that's just weird <sighs> having leverage. You're trying to lord this control or power one direction or the other where it's right. leverage. Yeah. And and to me, it's like, you know, when I come here in our employee base, like every time I come here, I'm getting hugs because I, I work remote half the time or more, three quarters of the time. So when I come here, I'm getting hugs from employees and, and you know, fo- coworkers and whatnot. It's like, there's this family dynamic that's baked into the process now. And before, when I started, there was some toxicity and some things I wasn't happy about. And so I think part of it is creating a culture around that where you you truly want to be in an environment yeah. and you're serving each other. So it's a top down. And then even some of the reminders we have. So like, you know, you, you think about office gossip and how toxic that can be. Like, it's a pretty strong rule that, you know, you, you pass positives around and you pass negativity up. Right. So if it's not, if it's not going up, something's wrong. Right. 
and even those small things have kind of went to that where it's like people are negative and they have that two week notice mentality. It's always like one foot out, one foot in. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the kind of weird dynamic I don't like. Right. But we want our employees to feel empowered to leave as well. So like, you know, if you have a bigger opportunity somewhere else, I want to bless you off the door because mm-hmm. I don't own you. Right. You're a resource and you're someone I'm stewarding today as a resource, but ultimately we don't own you. Right. So I, we want people to know that like we, we love to work with people at the same mindset and that kind of stuff. So they don't ever feel like they're just a slave to the dollar. Right. Like they're part of the solutions. They're part of the team. They're part of making culture. So they're, they're part of the team, not, not another cog in the wheel. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the shift here. But I like the idea short of if, if you're not committed, sometimes you always be the one leg out, one leg in. I was kind of halfway having your LinkedIn profile actively, you know, interested in jobs or whatever. Sure. So it's really hard to truly buy into culture and be part of the change if there is some negative. Right. That's but maybe the small shift I'd have. There, there's a part of me that is believes that this thought process, mm-hmm. it empowers your employee. It also opens that conversation for you to be open with them of being like, Hey, like I'm here to help you. Like, let me see what I can do. Like we're an advocate, whatever else. And I think in, in return that gives them power to know, like you're never stuck here. And there's almost an element where if you feel stuck, you might be more prone to try to run away. Sure. Whereas if you feel like, Hey, I know at any point I can do this. Logan's going to help me. Jordan's going to help me. Yeah. I've got freedom here. And again, you're treated like a volunteer with structure, yeah, with rigidity. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I really believe you could build this culture, build this mindset where your retention and your devotion and your culture is higher because of it. Yeah, no, I think, and that's partially what's happening right now. I mean, short of some of the actual mechanics there, I actually mm-hmm. love, I love a lot of that, What if it's done right in the correct manner, right? right. But yeah, I think that's exactly what we're uh, striving to do. Okay. Because I think there's some organizations that go too far mm-hmm. to where it's kind of like, just show up when you want to show up almost. And you're getting right. paid big dollars to do that. That doesn't actually help anybody. No. It's kind of like, you know, I look at some of the homeless situation i'm very empathetic with people that you know are living on the streets and you know let's say that people that are truly homeless not the ones that want to be a kind of urban campers and this new hip thing to do but mm-hmm. uh, i remember the mayor of greenville asked him a question about you know how do you how do you do what you're doing right now like the city's clean and homeless seem supported and they're not everywhere and trash everywhere and um and they're not less than by any means they're they're people with real faces and real mm-hmm. hearts like they're and that's one thing is to not diminish them but he's like you know think about this if you had a family member a kid he's on drugs he's on the streets are you okay with that you're just gonna let him be there or would you try to get him help and i'm like well obviously i'm gonna try to help him he's like because you love them right i'm like yeah he's like so that's the lie we've been kind of fed is that we should be okay with people being on the streets right right so anyways i kind of go on this tangent because i feel like sometimes these companies are going too far to the extreme like just let people be well that doesn't actually lend itself to you feeling respected and part of a culture and valued because if you don't have you know again that some of structure that rigidity around your position expectations Mm -hmm. you kind of get into this weird whimsical what i'm actually like producing sure what i'm actually giving to be part of this tribe right which i think we all strive at some point to be part of a tribe again come back to just sheer survival instincts right 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 and i i think we should even just call it at that it does open the door for uh thinking about i'm reading or just got finished reading a book about and part of it is is discipline with kids yeah uh and that they need that and without that they're more lost and that in in a discipline type situation if done correctly you're going to be closer afterwards sure right Uh, and the kid just thrives and if you don't ever be the one to give them discipline they're going to go farther and farther and farther Mm -hmm. and push and push and push and and really what they're doing is just hoping that somebody is there to give them a border a boundary sure 
And could that be true as an employee as well? I think it's the same thing. I think honestly, we grow up some, but there's certain principles I don't, we ever, we don't ever grow, outgrow yeah. in my opinion. Huh. To an, to an extent, I think some of it changes and we, we, it's bigger type things, you yeah. know, but it, I, yeah, I'm not spanking employees clearly, but uh, right. Mr. Michael Scott, <laughs> Scott, Michael Scott from the office. <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah. But really, Jordan, this is fun. Thanks yeah, for hopping on. To- totally agreed. Yeah, it's awesome. And I just want to say this and going back to the kind of the status quo and why. Yeah. The, I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the last few years and, and I've enjoyed your podcast by and large the most because I think your mind is very similar to mine and you ask very peculiar questions and I've watched you jump from subject to subject with a lot of your guests with seemingly no knowledge base. At least it didn't seem like it, but you're able to meet them where they're at yeah. and really pull out a lot of information. That's like, holy crap, you, you pivoted fast and your questions are very uh, on spot. So you, you just have that knack and ability to keep people engaged. So I've definitely uh, appreciated kind of the evolution from day one to now and excited to see kind of where this goes. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoy it. I, yeah, well, I appreciate that. It is something where I don't have to fake this at all. Like it's, it's just so fun to just sit down and pick people's brains. And, and as you're talking my brain, there's like 50 questions that come up in, in your, uh, I mean, depends on this, uh, what you're talking about, but usually there's more questions I've forgotten in the conversation sure. than I've actually asked. But sure. Sometimes that's good. Maybe right? yeah. you can have somewhat of a, a process to it, I guess, maybe a little bit, but sure. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. Definitely. You have a good one. Thank you. Yep. Hey guys, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have, and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you listen and give us some feedback with a review until next time. Thank you.